RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thursday morning on Reality Check Radio, we talk a lot about health on this program. Many doctors overseas, local, with all sorts of views on what health is. And one man who should know, because he's sort of been down in the weeds for quite some time in health, or is it medicine? Or is it health or is it medicine? We'll ask him. Um, is Rob Campbell. Rob Campbell is well known to New Zealanders. He's been around a long time in back in the union days and in business. We don't need to go through that. But we would like to welcome him to our program this morning on Reality Check Radio. Rob, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Good morning, Nuts. Good to be here. You know, good to see these startups doing well. Oh, yeah. And we are doing well. And I say that with confidence and uh, a lot of optimism. So it, it's Good to know the space is there. It's a new space and, and it's filling up fast. Put it that way. There'll be more. All right. So first of all, how are you feeling after what happened a few months ago when suddenly, were you, were you fired? Was that like, you know, you're fired? Um, yeah. Uh, I know I was sacked. Uh, no, no question. I, uh, I was uh, told that I could either apologize or be sacked. So I apologized and, I got sacked. Anyway. <laughs> so I think I don't think there's any ambiguity about me getting sacked. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, just remind us, what was the terrible sin that you committed again? Well, the 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 ostensible reason, um, that's a bit confusing. So Minister Beryl has said repeatedly that she sacked me because I called Christopher Luxon stupid. Now, I didn't call That's a sacking offence? Yeah, apparently. Uh, well, I'm Ooh. not going to debate right now whether that's fair comment or not, but at least I didn't make it. What I said was that Christopher Luxon had saved his party from a piece of stupidity over climate change, right. but that he was dog-whistling on racism in, in, in other areas, in, in three waters. So she's not quite right about that, but that was the ostensible reason. But let me be quite clear. I was aware from December at least that there was a desire on the part of ministry and other political leadership to remove me from the position because they didn't like my independent line of thought or the public positions I was taking on things that were not tying the party line. So they used the Luxon thing as an excuse to get rid of me, though why they used that, I've got no idea. Because you would have been able to take the other one anyway, right? You're a big boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the sort of things they didn't like where I made a public statement uh, about uh, alcohol sales that was reflecting the public health advice I had, but the government wasn't supporting that particular line. They were a bit upset about me pushing Māori equity too much. There were two or three other things where um, they felt that I should be taking my instructions on what I said from the minister's office, and instead I was taking them from the people who knew what they were talking about in the health system. So there was a bit of a clash there. Very top down. Very top. Oh, down. look, it is. It is very. It is very top down. The health service. It surprised me how much so. And in fact, if you look at the Paora Healthy Futures legislation, the whole structure of setting up a crown entity was supposed to create some distance in that respect, so that you had operational decisions being taken by this government appointed and paid, but nevertheless independent entity. Uh, but in fact, the minister, the ministry, and indeed the prime minister's office right through, everyone continued to treat Te Whātawara just as if it was an ordinary government department. So they really missed the point of their own legislation to some extent. Oh, did you ever get paid? 
Yeah, I got paid. Um, uh, there was an amount uh, set aside that, you know, we, we ran out of pretty quickly because the Public Service Commission thought that the job I had was a job that could be done in one day a week. Um, and, uh, you know, that simply wasn't possible. It was a seven-day-a-week job. Yeah, I think uh, you said 70 hours, I think you you said, or something in that ballpark. <laughs> look, it might have been, uh, yeah, something like that. I'd, sorry, I'd get, it, I'd get it wrong now, but it was, it was manifestly inadequate. In ter- and I'm whinging about the money, but it was manifestly inadequate in, the, in terms of the way they conceptualised the job. The, the leadership, the chair of the, and I told them this right from the start, the chair of Tafatawara needed to be an executive chair role that was full time and fully committed. Otherwise, you were dealing exclusively with people who had already worked for years within the old system, and and they simply needed a whole lot more direction and cajoling and jostling, whatever nice phrase I can use, um, Those to, are nice. to change. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's fast forward now to the twenty first of May. The story. Uh, is in there, a piece in the Herald, and it concerns your address presentation, uh, appearance at the Women in Medicine group, what, meeting, conference, gathering, and some of the things that you had to say there. And you you kind of framed it by starting off with a series of imaginary emails. Now, I read them, and for a moment there, I thought, boy, did he get this from from these people? And then I, I twigged. But uh, that kind of set the whole thing up. Tell us about those imaginary emails, uh, three, well, right? Yeah, I invited them to imagine that I'd had an email from Asia Viral inviting me back in to become a independent strategic advisor to her on change. Um, uh, I don't think that's very likely, but uh, it was a way of uh, structuring it so that I could uh, say what I wanted to say as if it were advice to the minister. And then I thought to be sort of an equal opportunity critic, I'd throw in a bit of cheek at Christopher Luxon uh, as well. So I, I, I sort of gave him some criticism about dog whistling on, on race uh, and, uh, and then a, a quick comment just to make sure I covered the field with John Tamahiri as well. But that, okay. was, that was all just really to frame what I wanted to say more seriously to what was a what is a pretty serious group. I mean, they're mainly pretty senior clinicians, the women that are in that group. There's, you know, many hundreds of them. There was only about uh, less than 100 at this meeting, but it was a, it's a serious group. And they're coalface wor- workers in, in the health system. They, they see it day to day, I guess. Yeah, um, they certainly see it day by day. They're all actively engaged as clinicians. Whether you'd call them coalface workers is probably a, right. Probably another question. Well, they know what's they, going they, down. They know they, what's going they, down. Absolutely, they're actively involved with treating patients. That sort of thing, the sort of thing that would be a great shock to most bureaucrats if they ever had to do. Yeah, I see. You make a point about uh, the experience uh, in health of some of the bureaucrats. We'll we'll get to that. But what you say, and it's alarming, is basically. Our health system at the moment is in emergency condition, like sirens on, lights flashing, get out of the way, it's an emergency. Yeah, I believe that's the case, and I, I deliberately chose that word because I think we've got used to the term crisis. Uh, it means, uh, you know, crisis now means something that's there, it's quite important, but there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, that's, it's come to, come to me to that. It's a bit like 
it's a bit like glacial. So you and I can remember the days when you would describe something as glacial and it meant it was moving forward slowly. Very now slow. You, yeah. Now if you refer to something as glacial, it means it's moving backwards quickly. Okay. I don't know if that's physically possible for a well, glacier. It is, but... it is if you're a glacier. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, words of meanings have changed. You're dead right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that it's worth calling it an emergency. And the, the term emergency is what, get used to, got, what gets used to me a lot. I have, this, is, this has flabbergasted me, but I have several people a day contacting me from within the wider health service system, seeking sometimes just a shoulder to cry on, sometimes some advice about whether they really should leave their job or not sometimes some advice about whether I think it's safe for them to raise a particular concern they have. Uh, but, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on that and, and I feel the responsibility to do it and I, and I don't want those people to stop if any of them are listening to this broadcast because, uh, you know, I do gather together what people are saying and try and express it in the opportunities I have to talk publicly and they are all talking of an emergency. I mean, yesterday or is it even today, Yesterday, I think it is, you know, you get nurses in a ward in Gisborne walking off the job for an hour. Well, that's, that's not a strike in the sense it's, to, it's intended to change an employer's mind with economics. It's an expression of despair and frustration. Uh, and so you've got that happening in your health service and it's happening across a lot of places. That's an emergency and we have to do something about it. Well, what are the, some of the things you're hearing then? Like, like what? From those well, calls, I mean, without revealing anything you don't want to tell us about. Oh, look, there, there are things that we actually we all we all know. Really, people are feeling overworked and overtired. They're feeling bullied when they raise issues about their working conditions. They feel uh, frightened to to raise those issues. They don't feel uh, heard. Uh, I had a, a group just today uh, of quite senior people. Uh, concerned about the way uh, they were being treated in a change program uh, and uh, not being listened to, being told by uh, management what uh, what they should do. And they very strongly believe, as the people at the coalface, as you put it, uh, it's not what they should do and, and really not seeing any option, uh, you know, and like calling me is a pretty desperate last-ditch effort for people who are working within the system. So... Right, right across, right across that range, and uh, you know, parents. Uh, I've had uh, parents in the last week asking whether I, you know, I really thought it was safe for their child to uh, complete their nursing training or whether and go into the public health service or whether they should do something else. I mean, these these things can't be ignored. So it's not just waiting lists. It's I'm talking, you know, all those numbers you can see, the waiting lists, the number of people in EDs, all those things are really, really important. But I think the emergency you find largely in the stress of the people, from senior surgeons to cleaners and orderlies, uh, who uh, to voluntary workers in many health agencies out in the community, uh, who are really genuinely and emotionally distressed. That's what I call an emergency. How in the hell do we get to here, this place then? Well, it wasn't easy. You'd almost think we had to do it deliberately. I don't, but but it happened, I think, over many years that the patterns of demand for health services uh, have changed over recent uh, decades. Uh, the, the patterns of supply 
uh, have changed and the system hasn't reacted well to that. Uh, so it's partly a funding question and you can see big gaps in funding, but it's also partly a gap in the way that people have thought about health services and how they should be provided. So that's been slowly developing. Uh, and now I think COVID was a, was a major accelerator. Uh, but now, while COVID's not gone, uh, the pressures are becoming more and more acute. Um, so, uh, you know, first slowly, then quickly. Yeah, um, I heard a figure, I don't know if it's uh, totally accurate, but uh, in the last decade, decade, we've spent up big on health. I think there's been a 70% or something in that ballpark increase in spending. And we still have an emergency. Yeah, well, you can keep on putting fuel into an old car, but it's still an old car, isn't it? And is the car the right one? Uh, I don't think we've really uh, been spending the money necessarily on the uh, the wrong, the, the right things. Uh, so that's that's part of the problem. There is, look, there is there is inefficiency and and wastage, etc., within the system. But that's not the core of this crisis. The the core of the crisis is uh, that we haven't been uh, funding and structuring the way we develop health services uh, in a way that's adequate to the increasing demand that there is. You know, we do have uh, a changing. Uh, demographic in our in our in our population, uh, which is increasing uh, demand for health services, particularly amongst the age. We have you know a highly uh, volatile uh, cultural mix in our population, which is an issue as well. Uh, so there's a whole lot of things that we simply haven't been responding to in the way we should. So you can pour more money into an inappropriate, I called it a car, but any sort of vessel. Uh, and it won't necessarily work. Yeah, you might get a warrant. Yeah, you might have a few more warrants, but that's about well, it, baby. Well, well, you get you get the warrant by slipping a note to the guy yeah. issuing the warrant. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. think there's been too much of that going on. Uh, it's, I'm sure it happens. So, is getting it right, you know, actual rocket science? No, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't really think that it is. You know, I mean. Uh, grand plans can sometimes be an obstacle. So, for example, a lot of money has been spent in recent years by the ministry uh, on some quite high-tech um, uh, developments, uh, and you could argue whether they're the right ones or not. But uh, if, when you go and talk to people in the system, they're quite simple things they want. You know, I, I was at the a doctor in one of our hospitals not long ago after I'd left the job, so I probably shouldn't have been there, but I was. And uh, he was saying, look, it's no good us having this fancy new system. The computer I'm sitting in front of is running on Windows 7. Yeah, um, okay. So sometimes you just have to deal with the really basic things that people are having to face up to uh, rather than your grand plan, which might look okay, might look important. It, look, it might even be the right thing in due course. So don't get me wrong, I'm not against high tech, but you have to build towards that. You have to have the right systems in place. You have to do it uh, in, in the way a business would do it. Has the management and thinking then of NZ Health been captured in some way? I think it's inbred rather than captured. Oh, inbred. I, I, I don't think there's enough of... So there's some capture with 
uh, consultancy uh, type advice. There's no doubt about that. But basically, those people just read a document from the UK or the US and put it into Kiwi language and call it their report. So and send in the uh, invoice. And send the invoice. Yeah, they they don't miss the invoice part. Um, so it's not so much that as that I don't think there's been enough uh, interchange between, and I mean two-way, uh, between management in the core health services and management in the primary uh, health services in the community, uh, even between, say, the private hospitals and the public hospital uh, frameworks. And I think also in many aspects of uh uh, of uh, senior management, there would have been a great benefit in having a bit of flow of skills between the private sector corporations and uh, and the health sector as well, because an observation would have been that senior management in the health sector in most respects lagged in quality behind what I was used to in the corporate sector. Yeah, and I suppose in the private sector, the, the decisions that you have to make are the ones that keep you viable. Yeah, that's right. So the it's a problem with, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a public sector uh, supporter, but you have to work hard in different ways at uh, keeping the quality of your management or other skills up. Um, you know, the, the dog-eat-dog world, if you like, of, of corporate management doesn't necessarily transfer to the health sector uh, but I think there are nevertheless things that you could have learned. There were certainly practices uh, in uh, in capital investment evaluation uh, that would never have passed muster in the property companies that I've been involved with, uh, for example. Now, and that's just a reasonably straightforward thing. Yeah, first one would be update Windows, right? Uh, go to, the, <laughs> well, go to yeah. the latest version. The, the Windows example was was sort of amusing at one level. No, I know, but 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 yeah, look, I mean, if I can give you an example from the property side, which I knew a fair bit about from previous corporate experience, um, the uh, major capital projects were evaluated in part by doing a net present value calculation of the investment, which given the fact that there was no revenue on the other side of the investment, inevitably produced a substantially negative outcome. And yet all these reports that you would see on major capital developments included this dutiful uh, net present value calculation that was clearly negative. If you bothered doing it, it really meant you shouldn't have done it. Now, in fact, the facility was probably needed, but a different question. So it was just kind of rote copying of uh, what they thought were commercial activities. And I think you could see that right through a number of the ways in which people thought about things. So we, the, the real innovation uh, in the health sector, and there is a lot of it, uh, was happening almost outside the formal structure with individual clinicians or groups of clinicians trying new things on their own initiative, yeah. all being done out in the primary sector uh, where funding was given for one purpose but was being repurposed into something more useful by people who had some innovative skills. Uh, so that's there. There's a hell of a lot of it happening, but it was often being crushed or not distributed quickly enough. Just going back to the comments you made when you were talking about you know being contacted by people, I think you said that um, people were kind of nervous about uh, you know piping up about anything and that there seemed to be an element i don't know if you said the word bullying but i sort of kind of took it it might have been a slightly bullying environment i mean why why would yeah. it be like that 
Yeah, um, well, it's a bit of a mystery. You would hope it wasn't the case within the uh, within the health sector or indeed any workplaces. But look, I won't quote the number because I'll get it wrong. But there was a survey of uh, staff within the Tafatora uh, directly employed group late last year, and um, the proportion of people who reported uh, bullying or some equivalent kind of maltreatment was disturbingly high. And, uh, you know, I know that there is an intention uh, to address it, but it was at a level where you would say, well, this is more than a perception. Uh, there is an issue. I think the issue is an, a, a, a structure that's under enormous stress with people who in management who are often uh, not well-schooled or experienced at all in change management, and therefore you kind of revert back to behaving in a type uh, but it's it's a definite issue that people feel, many people feel they will be penalised if they speak out. Back to the Women in Medicine event that you um, spoke to. And again, um, I get impressions from what you, you know, the quote is saying in there. And one of them is that you're kind of putting or, or saying that our health system needed to be sort of triaged in a way. Like there was no, don't worry about all the fancy stuff. It's almost like, kind of like a war footing. You just got to do what you got to do, forget everything else, park that aside and, and get into that. Is that, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Just, um, I mean, the, the analogy, cause I think, and I think people there responded to it was, uh, what you do in, in a hospital or a health service of any kind, when something presents at the door and it's not just business as usual, but we've got to deal with it. You get on and you do what has to be done at, at the moment. Uh, to get through that, get through that issue, and and there's a lot of that in the sector. And you, know, you wouldn't expect me, with my virtually nil experience in health, to tell you what those things are, but I can tell you that's what you need to be doing, and you need to have that led by the people who are experienced. Yeah, in triage, I think I used that word, and I think it's the right one. So, what if you had the levers and it was you who sorted this out, and maybe it'll end up being you? You never know. <laughs> what do you do? I mean, what do you do and how long is it going to take given that emergencies, not much time available? Well, look, I didn't say this, I don't think, on Friday night, but I have spelled it out uh, before. Uh, I think that uh, you have to take advantage of the fact that this is highly centralised as it stands and the minister has very strong influence on just about everything of any size. She has to take advantage of that now. It's not, I don't think that's ideal. But right now, in an emergency, it could work for us. And what she needs to do is to identify with the people working in the sector uh, the small group of key things that really would make a difference in the short term, in the rest of this year. Uh, and empower people to actually get ahead and do those things. Uh, and that means cutting through some of the structure that's been established. Uh, it may mean bringing in some outside executives even to promote change more quickly. Uh, but there are some things, I think, that if you could show people working in the sector that urgent issues were being dealt with, they would be prepared to continue to work uh, on the longer-term change uh, and lose the despair that they have. So I think it's that 
initiative around a small number of things. So in contrast, for example, um, you might recall last year there was a planned care task force that was going to address the uh, the waiting list, basically, came back with over 100 recommendations. Now, that was a waste of time. No one works on 100 priorities. Superman can't do that or a superwoman can't do it. So you can kind of forget that sort of stuff. Even the so-called winter plan that's just been produced of 24, I think, things, most of which are sort of in train or don't have anything to do with winter anyway. They're not in themselves bad ideas, but they don't capture the urgency that people feel. Now, I can't tell you what would capture that, but I think if you've got you know, a group of, of, of nurses and doctors and uh, allied uh, professionals together, it wouldn't be that hard. When I listen to people, they're all talking about reasonably similar things. I think you could get that done, and if you could just show you were actually doing them, it would make it would make a huge difference. Yeah, because that would reinvigorate the soul of people in yeah. the workplace, wouldn't it? And that's very Absolutely. it can be very powerful. That very Look, powerful. Right, right, right through this sector, um, there are highly skilled, highly dedicated people who are basically highly motivated, who are by the day becoming more demotivated. Uh, and so it is. You know, I don't. Make it all sounds a bit flowery, but I do think it's sort of some decisive leadership around some key issues is more important than trying to deal with a thousand issues all at once and doing it badly. Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, the minister is a doctor, a medical doctor herself. Am I correct? Uh, well, she, she's got a doctor name in front of her. I don't know what her skill set is. Oh, I, I need to look back into that. But you'd think if, if it was that, that there'd be an automatic sort of, I don't know, understanding of of the issues. Um, speaking to the, okay, so let's say we get through an emergency phase and it's not clear whether that will even be attempted yet, but then you've got to make it fit for purpose for the future. And, um, you know, and people expect it, they pay their taxes. They want to rely on a health system and they're hearing every day that it's, or finding out every day from personal experience that it's maybe not as good as they thought. So how, how do you pull apart what's there now and get rid of all these huge lists of priorities, which look good, but, you know, once you start working through them, are, you know, <laughs> really difficult to do. Do you try and simplify the whole system or completely redesign it? Because um, you don't want to go through all this again necessarily and have the same outcome. What, what would you do? How would you see the next 10, 20 years of, of putting the thing on a solid footing, you know it's going to work, it's fit for purpose now and into the future. What's your concept of that? Look, I'm, I'm probably dangerous in this with, with little knowledge and, and, and potentially guilty of, um, uh, of doing what I criticise uh, uh, consultants for doing. But... <laughs> OK. Uh, <laughs> you got the disclaimer out of the way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, in my mind, to uh, effectively do this, you need uh, one organisation, uh, board and management, uh, I'm not talking about creating new boards, but you need one focused organisation on hospital systems. And that organisation has to involve both the public hospitals and the private hospitals, working together on what our hospital facilities need to be, how we need to change, how we need to integrate public and private. Uh, now, it's not you can't exclude that from the primary sector, but I think there is enough that you could say this is about the hospitals and how they should work and how the private and public should work together and give them that remit. So that's go away, 
do that. We're going to be talking with you all the time about the other bits. So that's one of the things I would do. Second thing I would do is I would create a an, a property business, uh, business I use the term in its widest possible sense, a, a property organisation that was focused on what properties were most needed, what we needed to own, what an appropriate asset management program was, what an appropriate reinvestment program was, what should be rented, what should be done X, Y, Z, that that just addressed this huge property portfolio as if it was a huge property portfolio rather than a set of political accidents costing a lot of money, which is what it is at the moment. Right. So I would have something that addressed that. Now, they're obviously going to be talking to the hospital operating people all the time, but the hospital operating people will be saying, this is what we need. You guys deliver it for us, just as a customer would say to a property owning uh, uh, operation. So I think those two distinctions are there. The, the vast primary care part of the system, I think, is more difficult. And I think it needs a whole lot more thinking about how you are what is the role of GPs? What is the role of the Kaupapa Māori organisations delivering health? What is the role of uh, midwives? So you go through every bit of it. You've re- how, does, how does the primary sector interact with ACC, which is something that's never really been addressed, and yet it's a critical part of, a, of, of both ACC and of um, Te Whātawara, what Te Whātawara funds. Uh, so I would have uh, definitely... Um, need, that needs a review. I don't think that bit of the reform has been thought through properly. The locality structure uh, could well be part of the final answer, but at the moment it's scheduled to be in place by the middle of 24, and that's an impossible dream in terms of anything effective. So I would, I would go back. I would, I'd reset on that part of it because I just don't think we've got it right. But I think, again, that could be done with the organisations already existing in, in the process. Um, and um, the, the next thing I would do is I think we already know quite a lot uh, about uh, involving Māori in the health service, and I think that if I would be putting uh, even more resources into Takafaiora, but I would be combining it with the work that is being done with Whanawara uh, already in wider than health sectors. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a re-look at how that works too, integrating uh, the health work with the wider work uh, of Whanawara. Uh, but so I would still, I would have an even stronger uh, Upper Māori health organisation because that's an interesting, it's good in itself, but it's a really interesting key competitor in providing alternative primary health services. Because uh, you've got to remember, when you go to a Upper Māori health provider, you will not see only Māori there. You will see many Paka, you will see many Indian and Chinese. Well, that, that's interesting as a competitive, yeah. Um, uh, as a competitive pressure on the Paka yeah, system, pressure. absolutely. There's some really interesting stuff happening there and doing things different ways and demonstrably being successful. It won't all be successful, obviously, but it's a, it's a good competitor. Well, good practices, good ideas are just that, aren't they? You, you don't want to be yeah. cut off from them. It's crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. So don't cut it off. Let it grow. Let it let it flower. Okay. So at the end of the uh, delivery of your your piece to the women in medicine, did they give you a standing ovation? Did well, they like? Means, okay, maybe not that. Was, but do they like what they hear from you? Did it strike a no, chord with them? Do you think it was really well organised? Most of them were already standing, Paul. So they, <laughs> okay. I definitely, I definitely got a good standing ovation. <laughs> 
Right. And they look, uh, there, was, there was a really positive uh, reaction to it. The questions that came both in the formal meeting and subsequently in the discussions were all about, I agree with what you're saying, uh, but I feel helpless to do anything about it. How can I express myself? Uh, that was very much, very much it. Um, and the only journalist there was a, a very good journalist from New Zealand Doctor, actually, who I think described it as me making a confession and then stirring people up. And uh, that was certainly what I intended to do. So she got that one. Okay. Do you think you'll ever get that email, <laughs> the first one? <laughs> no, I, look, I, I don't think I, I – I, I, obviously I won't. And, um, you know, if I were the minister, I would be having a rethink about what governance I wanted anyway. Um, so that's a separate question. It's been really interesting chatting to you. Thanks for making a bit of time. And Just there's a lot to think about there. And and basically, I think we're a lot more aware. Oh, how long can we go with an emergency before it, you know, everything falls to pieces? Because what are we now? We're end of May now. Winter is a peak time, I believe, for the health system, especially hospitals. How um, long are we? How long? What's how? What is the urgency? Emergency is urgent, right? It, it is urgent. Um, you know, one of the things that used to annoy me most when I was in the job was people reporting to the minister every Monday morning. Uh, there was a system pressures item on the agenda, and the statement always was that the system is under stress but coping. And, of course, it has no choice but to cope. Uh, so, yeah, look, it is an emergency, but will the system suddenly disappear in a puff of smoke or burn down or anything? No, it won't. The emergency will work its way out in bad health outcomes for patients and in stress and other health outcomes for people working in the system. So we'll just see more and more of that pain. And people deserting that system and looking for, you know, we hear, you know, nurses heading to Australia, all that sort of stuff. We can't bleed off the workforce like that, can we? Um, no, and, and uh, well, you can. You can keep importing people to do the jobs, ah, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But is that the kind of future we want for this country? I don't think it is. Rob Campbell, thanks for joining us on Reality Check Radio. We appreciate the time. It was a good chat. Cheers, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.